So I'm going to open up in prayer for tonight. Uh, tonight's message, as you can see from the handout, has a good amount of content. <laughs> but um, I'll get into the details a little bit later. But let me open up in prayer. Father God, we just come before you and we thank you for the privilege to minister, Lord, to you through inclining our ear to hear you. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be the teacher tonight. I thank you that you're the anointing in every person to teach them all things and to lead them into all truth. And Lord, I ask that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. That the vision of Jesus and who he is as a bridegroom, as a king, as a warrior, and as a judge would become one in our hearts. And I pray for a worthy response, Lord, on the inside that only you can bring about. That you've created us to behold you. You've created us to know you intimately, to behold you, to gaze upon you, and to become like you. And so we just say, come, Holy Spirit. Just like we sang tonight, Lord, come, Holy Spirit. Come with your peace. Come with your healing. Lord, come with your truth. Come with joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you guys. Thank you for coming tonight. It's a privilege to be uh, back up here uh, teaching. It took a year off, um, and it's a, it's a special place to be, to be able to share God's word with you. Um, tonight's message, um, Who does everyone have notes, first and foremost? Does everyone have notes? Okay. If for some reason someone new comes in, uh, Marshall, is okay if someone new comes in, if you could take the notes up here. I think there's three or four left. You pass the notes out to them. Um, tonight's message is titled, The Warrior, Bridegroom, King, and His Victorious Bride. It's a long title, but uh, its prequel was even a longer title. <laughs> the Divine Wedding from the Perspective of the Divine Fellowship. Um, the message, I taught a message last year, uh, I believe it was August 2022, and it was... Um, Basically regarding, centered in Psalm 45, regarding the different voicings and uh, relationship between the Father and the Son, which we call, and the Holy Spirit, which we call the divine fellowship. Um, and how they relate to one another in light of the Psalm 45, which is a wedding scene as the Son marries his bride. And, we'll, and I'll give a, a, a recap of that. Um, if you have not listened to my message from 2022, um, there is a QR code on the back wall. Uh, scan that and you can listen to it afterwards. Um, you will get the most out of this message knowing what I already talked about from last year. But this message tonight is standalone and uh, it's not required, the previous message, to listen to this one. Um, in the last few months, uh, there's been a, a theme of holiness that uh, the teachers have been teaching on. And what's funny is because I have kids, I help in the kids' church, I don't actually sit in service on Saturdays through a whole service very often. And so when Dave actually shared his message on uh, sharing in his holiness, which he did right before sabbatical, um, before November, I believe, I actually uh, did not hear it. I did not know that's what he was teaching. But around the same time, the Lord was actually guiding my heart 
um, on this theme to different passages. And so as I was actually preparing for the message uh, tonight, a couple, uh, like a month and a half ago, started asking the Lord, I was really going to preach a message on holiness. But about two weeks ago, the Lord uh, redirected me to this, uh, to this sermon that I had already written. So uh, the sermon tonight, I actually wrote as a sequel following last year's sermon. I just never, the Lord stopped me from teaching it. And I believe there's actually a, a prophetic significance um, why he has opened this, this uh, sermon up for me to share with you this in this time, the beginning of this year. Uh, Roman numeral four on page one. I, prophetically, I believe we are in an Exodus 19 season where the Holy Spirit is calling God's people as he did through Moses to consecrate themselves today and wash their garments so that they are ready for the third day. For If you're familiar with the story in Exodus 19, uh, God through Moses, uh, he's, he's about to descend upon Mount Sinai and he tells the people uh, through Moses to wash themselves, to cleanse themselves and basically prepare their hearts um, to meet the Lord. And so with that said, I'm going to start by reading Psalm 45. This is going to be the anchor scripture for us tonight. There's going to be a couple passages that we will read through. Um, But Psalm 45 is like our, is the anchor of our study tonight. The last, and I'll say this before I read it, the last sermon I did only focused on the first two verses. So tonight's sermon will cover verses 3 through 13. Um, not necessarily verse by verse, but uh, we'll cover all the major concepts from those verses. So let me read it. Um, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, Almighty One, in your splendor and in your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, and of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. So in my sermon from 2022, I laid the foundation for exploring the divine wedding scene in Psalm 45 by studying the heart of the father towards his son and the son's heart towards his father. 
In Psalm 45, the son's heart is overflowing with adoration and praise to his father, for the father has given him his heart's desire, a holy bride. The father has poured upon the son's lips gracious words of praise and instruction to cleanse, wash, and prepare his bride for marriage. These words cost the son his life. As he bore witness to the father's name, despite rejection and false accusation from men. Because of the son's faithfulness, the father has entrusted all things into his son's hand and has given him the seal of eternal high priest. The son rejoices in the fruit of his father's words, which is a victorious bride, pure and glorious within. She is the golden crown that the father places on his son. The bride has been swept up into this eternal fellowship through inclining her ear to the voice of her beloved bridegroom, who washed, cleansed, and sanctified her in the words, glory, and name of the Father. The Son has loved her the same way the Father loved him and has given her the same glory the Father gave him. God loved God by giving God to God. And God loves the bride by giving God to the bride. Before we move forward... um, As you know, the way I'm going to use these notes tonight is I have uh, bold and italicized all quoted scriptures, Um, and I use the New American Standard, 1995 edition, Um, and anything that's underlined is from me, and it's because of uh, I'm trying to emphasize a certain point. Also, um, I will, to help track along, because there is a lot of content, I will use like Roman numeral four or five, you know. Um, but I will not necessarily read through these paragraphs. So you can take a big sigh of relief. Oh my gosh, 19 pages of this? Oh my goodness. Um, I will cover things conceptually. I might even skip some. We'll just see. Um, and then there's some where I may read it right out of here. So just want to prepare you guys. But first thing that we're going to establish tonight um, is that the year of redemption and vengeance. And, and as we read in Psalm 45, the first verse is, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. In your majesty, right on victoriously. So we're just going to establish in this first section of the sermon tonight that Jesus is coming. And you can look at that different ways. His actual physical coming or a, a visitation of revival, right, where he is present among his people. Um, I actually take it the same way, but either way, there is a day of, it's a day of gladness and it's also a day of vengeance songs, uh, chapter three, it says that the wedding day is a day of gladness and the day the Lord comes back is not just a rescue mission. It's not a rescue mission. It's a wedding. And so as the wedding though, it's important to understand that this wedding is not just, oh, yay, celebration and giddiness. It is a sober wedding. Because at, in this wedding, there is the reality that he is coming to take vengeance upon his enemies, specifically the enemies of his bride. We will be visiting Isaiah 60 through 63 a lot tonight in, the, in this first section. And we see through these chapters that, that there is a wedding scene that captures both the year of redemption and the day of vengeance. And it's important, um, I really encourage if you guys read Isaiah, because because the chapter breaks, it's really easy. We kind of dice things up. And when we dice things up, we can go really deep. But when we go really deep, sometimes we lose the big picture. And so I encourage you just to go through a bunch of chapters of Isaiah. And it's like all of a sudden, it's like this vision opens up. Um, so from Isaiah 60 to 63 on your own time, we're not going to read through all that. We'll cover little bits and pieces. But it paints this wedding scene of 
of vengeance and favor for the bride. So let's go to Revelation 19. We uh, sang through it tonight. And I'm going to start in verse 7. And I'm going to read through uh, 18. I'm going to, so yeah, starting in verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come. So we see it's in the context of a wedding, right? The marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against his army. And I'll stop there. So Roman numeral 2 and page 2. It is in righteousness, and this is key, it's in righteousness that Jesus judges and makes war. Jesus hates lawlessness and sin, but not simply for the sake that it's lawlessness and sin. He hates lawlessness because lawlessness causes love to grow cold, which he testifies, right, Matthew 24. He says, in the end of days, he says, lawlessness will abound, it will increase, and it causes the love of many to grow cold. He also, and I'll just say this, it's not in the notes, but this hit me just recently, um, than did him before. He says right before that, that false Christs and prophets will rise up. He doesn't say what they teach. He just says they're false prophets and teachers, right? And then it connected. <laughs> oh, that's how lawlessness abounds because we have a false grace message that's going out, right? And a church that receives it or to those who receive it and their love grows cold. Not just in the church, but we see it happening even outside the church on a governmental level. However, it is for the sake of righteousness, a bride that has clothed herself in righteous deeds and has kept her heart for him, that deeply moves his heart to come judge and make war. He declares war on his enemies for the sake of the relationship with his bride. Let's turn to Isaiah 63. We're going to read 1 through 4. And we're going to get into details of Isaiah 60 through 63. But for right now, I'm just setting, kind of painting the picture so you guys have a, an anchor, a reference. Verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads on the winepress? 
I have trodden the wine through alone and from, so I've won, I have trodden the wine trough alone and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. So Psalm 45, Revelation 19, Isaiah 63, right? They're all painting this picture of a wedding scene where there's a warrior bridegroom king riding on majestically into the scene to marry his bride and his garments are freshly stained from battle. The context for Isaiah 63 is Isaiah 60 through 62, which we will talk about in a little bit. But just to start, Isaiah 60 starts with this picture of arise and shine, bride. Your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So there's this picture of favor, right, on the bride, Isaiah 60. But as we see in Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 63, this year is not just a year of favor, it's a year of vengeance as well. It says, the Lord says, that the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will be utterly ruined, and the sons who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. That's Isaiah 60, verse 12. So we see in Isaiah 60 that there's this tension between favor and vengeance. Go to Isaiah 61. Obviously, there's a lot in between these verses, right? But I'm just kind of hitting some milestones so you can kind of see that there's a consistent, there's a pattern here in these chapters. Isaiah 61 opens with the spirit of the Lord God's upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Within this proclamation, there is a promise for restoration, revival, healing, liberation, and exaltation as God comes to eternally covenant himself to his people. What we find in Isaiah 61 is just a continuation of what is started in Isaiah 60. Isaiah 61.10 reads, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Although in this uh, context, it's agreeable that this is an analogy, right? He's using the the wedding uh, uh, garments that are used for bride and bridegroom to paint a picture of how his bride is going to be clothed with uh, righteousness. But I don't believe the language, the neutral language, is an accident or a coincidence. I believe it's specifically used by Isaiah because there is a wedding scene that's being painted here. So it really helps, right, when you've got an analogy that's within context. Roman numeral five. The favor and redemption that's outlined in Isaiah 60 through 61 shapes into a divine wedding scene in Isaiah 62. And let's read Isaiah 62, just the first part. It says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal crown in the hand of your God. It will no longer be said to you forsaken, nor to your land it will any longer be said desolate. But you will be called my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And to him your land will be married. For as a young man, once again, here's the analogy. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices with the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. 
On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen all day and all night. They will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So we see that it's for the sake of God marrying a bride without spot, wrinkle, and blemish that he sets intercessors and watchmen who cry out to him day and night. And it's important to note that this zeal that says uh, that we see that the, the watchmen are supposed to have, they're not supposed to give him rest, right? But where does this zeal in the intercessors come from? It starts with him. The zeal for the bride starts with him. We in ourselves, we possess the zeal as we behold him. So, it went, you know, I, I believe Isaiah is the one that's actually saying it in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. But I believe he is representing the Lord in this instance, even though it's directly quoted later by the Lord. I have set watch my walls. He has to be the vision. <laughs> As intercessors, I've learned that the most effective intercession is that which comes through Beholding. As we gaze him, our job as watchmen is not to gaze upon the scene of chaos in the world. Our job as watchmen is to gaze on him. And we respond to him. And so as he groans, we groan. As he prays, we pray. As he's, when he stands up, we stand up. When he sits down, we stand down. We are to mirror him. Roman roll uh, six. The watchman's cry in Isaiah 62 for the Lord to come and parade his glorious bride throughout the earth is answered again in Isaiah 63 when he comes with both favor and vengeance in his heart. He's revealed in Isaiah 63 as a bridegroom warrior whose wedding apparel is freshly stained with blood from battle. I don't know if you've ever seen a military wedding. Um, I have never been to one, but I've seen like, you know, pictures and different things. And uh, whoever's in the military is dressed... In their military apparel, right? And if there's anyone in the military here, you guys can correct me on that. Uh, give me more accurate research. But I see them dressed in their military apparel and they're wearing their medals and the different things that they have that's according to their military status, right? Well, Jesus does the same thing at his wedding, except his medal is blood. It's the blood of his enemies. He comes freshly out of Eden with garments stained in blood. And what does that mean? It's a declaration of his love for us. And we're going to explore this further. Psalm 45, as he said in Revelation 19, paint the same picture. He comes with a sword girded upon his side and his enemies are sharp in the heart of his enemies and the peoples fall under him. So section B, understanding the prophetic sickness of Edom. So, it bewildered me for a while, why is the Lord coming out of Edom, right? Why... Why Edom in Isaiah 63? What is he emphasizing? So for the next couple sections here, we're going to, next paragraphs, we're going to explore and understand the historical as well as the prophetic significance of Edom slash Esau in this story. In light of what we have discussed, why is Edom, which is, and Basra, which Basra, um, if I'm correct, is Edom's capital. But why is it his central battleground? his victorious battleground that he comes out from in this wedding scene. To answer this question, as I said, we must understand historical prophetic significance. So uh, geographically, Edom was the land and the descendants, not just the land, but the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. In Malachi 1, the Lord said, was not Esau Jacob's brother, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Why did God love Jacob and hate Esau? 
The book of Hebrews calls Esau an immoral and godless person because he sold his birthright for a single meal and consequently was rejected from Isaac's blessing. Why was giving his birthright such a big deal to God? Well, when Esau gave up his birthright, he was selling his inheritance as a firstborn to take care of the rest of the family. He forfeited his natural privilege to be a blessing to the nations and directly his family. And to simply put, Jacob was hungrier for the opportunity. Therefore, Jacob received the blessing. And just to separate, there's a different, there's, people kind of confuse this into one, the, the birthright and the blessing. But first, there was an actual transaction between Jacob and Esau. Esau traded over his, his birthright. Okay? And I'm not going to get into this. The Lord has put a lot about the story of Esau and Jacob in my heart. But I will say this. Um, what happened there, Esau made his statement before heaven. I do not want the responsibility. See, this blessing, we tend to see blessing as like a selfish thing. But back then, blessing was kind of like the equipment that came with the call. <laughs> it's like you're called to, uh, you're called, the, the, sorry, let me backtrack. Um, the firstborn was given a double portion. That was what the birthright was. It was a double portion because they were the ones responsible for the family. So it just makes sense. It's like you have a higher paying job when you've got more responsibility. It just goes with uh, the authority. So the blessing that was supposed to be from Isaac was to be attached to the birthright. So yes, what uh, Jacob did was a deceptive act. But the thing I would present before you was that before the eyes of heaven, Esau already gave it up. There were the, legal, the legality in heaven's eyes was that Jacob was actually owed the blessing. I'll t- let you guys wrestle with that one. Um, so spiritually speaking, we see that Edom in Isaiah 63 represents those who, like Esau, despised the inheritance of the Lord. Roman numeral 2, page 4. The theme of Esau or Edom despising the Lord's inheritance, interestingly enough, continues throughout its biblical history. The scriptures testify that on the day that Israel was taken to Babylon, Edom took vengeance on Israel by cursing them and delivering them to the sword. Hoping to take advantage of their misfortune, Edom sought to possess the promised land themselves. Their unlawful vengeance resulting in God cutting off Edom forever. You can see the scripture reference to that. One of them is Obadiah 10. He says, because of violence to your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame and you'll be cut off forever. Historically, Esau despised inheritance. We see that. And Edom, the land, and the people, the descendants of Esau despised the inheritance of the Lord by acting violently towards God's people. However, this is important. It's not about bloodlines. It's a prophetic message. Prophetically, Edom represents any force person, organization, etc., fill in the blank, that afflicts, oppresses, or acts unjustly towards Jesus and his inheritance, i.e. his bride. Please note that this curse on Edom, this cutting off forever, is still active today as it's been for all of eternity. It is not specific to nationality and bloodlines, but it's according to testimony and practice. And this is maybe a little bit of a disrupting statement to say this, but you can be ethnically Jewish and yet prophetically by your practice and testament be under the curse of Edom. This is why it's important that we see past the carnal lens and into what the Lord is saying spiritually and prophetically. But why? Why this statement towards Edom? What is this for? Like what is going on in God's heart? We must understand 
that God's hate for Edom is better understood in light of a jealous husband. And so we see in Proverbs 6, 30 through 35, I'm not going to quote it, but uh, I'm not going to read through it line by line. But basically it says that men do not despise a man when they steal because they're hungry, right? But the one who commits adultery with a woman is stupid and destroys himself. For when the husband finds out, he will not accept any ransom nor be satisfied with many gifts. Proverbs 27, 4 says even more plainly, wrath is fierce and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? The beginning of Zephaniah describes the husband's jealousy as a fire that will devour the earth. And let's read it for a second. It says in uh, Zephaniah 118, it's on the page, neither their soul silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. Zephaniah makes it seem like there is no one who will be able to stand in this fire until it's clarified at the end of the message that God's wrath against the earth is not simply because he's angry, but it's because he's jealous for his holy bride. In his jealousy, he will deal with all his bride's oppressors and restore her fortunes. I'm not going to read Luke 18 because uh, it's kind of long. It's in there on the page, Roman numeral 2. But um, I'll say this, that this is the confidence that we have as a bride. Luke 18 speaks a story, uh, depicts a story, right, of a widow can, uh, going before an unjust judge. And the judge eventually gives what the widow is asking for, not because he fears man or fears God, but simply out of the persistence of the widow. However, here's the, here's the thing that I always take away from the story. We're not a widow, and we have a just judge. So how much more, right, should we stand confidently before the Lord? But there is a condition When the bride is in compromise, God's hands are tied. The enemy has a legal right to torment and to afflict. Amos 5, 18 through 20. I'm just going to read the 18. It says, Alas, you you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Even gloom with no brightness in it. It's a scary reality for people who have this concept that God has saved them despite what they do. And I've even heard, I mean, from, uh, from people where they're like, yes, excited for, yeah, Jesus is going to come and save, he's going to rescue us, because they're thinking they're going to get out of their, all their bad situations. But they're living in sin. Amos 5 speaks to those kind of people. And it's a sobering reality for us to consider, too, that our celebration of the Lord's return is that he's not just coming as a happy, giddy husband, but he's coming as a warrior against all the enemies of love. Roman numeral three, the Bible describes the vengeance the Lord will bring upon his enemies as recompense and retribution. I'm just going to cover this briefly. Um, God's investment method is that he doesn't just give back to you what you give him. He doesn't just return your capital, but he gives it back with interest. But this works not just with good things. It also works with bad things too. So good seed that you sow will come back with interest. Now, obviously, with forgiveness, it's beautiful because even if you have so bad seed, the Lord, He pays for that, right? But for the enemies who have not repented, what they have sown in evil and wickedness will return back, not just what they did to His bride, but with interest. Let's go to Psalm 18. And I'm 
going to start in verse 7. And then you'll understand why when I share this paragraph. This, uh, this starting in verse 7 is a response to David. It's a psalm of David crying out to the Lord in his distress. Okay, so that's the backdrop. It says in verse 7, Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up and out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. devoured. Coals and were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place and his canopy around him. Darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies, from the brightness before him past his thick clouds. Hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared, and the foundation of the world was laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. This is quite a picture, right? It's almost like, I hope this is not uh, taking away, but just kind of almost see this like, Jesus is sitting on the throne, and all of a sudden he just like goes into Hulk mode, you know? It's just like, what did you do to my pride kind of thing? But it paints a picture of not just this angry God. It's not, that's, that's separating uh, from the full picture. The picture is Jesus is not a passive, complacent, indifferent husband. And it's important as a church, the Apostle Peter calls it in the third uh, chapter of Second Peter. He says, there will be people in the end days who will mock and say, where is this coming? Nothing has actually changed. Don't misjudge the delay. Don't misjudge the silence. Because the Bible describes his eyes as eyes of fire and smoke coming out of his nostrils. He's like jasper and sardius stone, as it says in Revelation. Pure and holy focused desire. The bride is in the center of his heart. In Isaiah 63, which we read, is where the Lord comes out of Edom, right? Vengeance and redemption in his heart. In verse 9, it says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. What hurts us hurts him. What afflicts us afflicts him. He feels it and he takes it personal. And I love Psalm 18 because it provides this glorious picture of a God who comes down from heaven with fury against his adversaries to not only save but to marry his holy bride. But it's important, as we see in Psalm 18, 19, starting in verse 19, David says, He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. God rescues because he delights. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. And look at David's responsibility in this process of being one who the Lord delights in. I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God for all his ordinance before me. And I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands and his eyes. And we'll stop there. What moves the Lord's heart to respond in such a manner as we see in Psalm 18 is not simply because his beloved is being afflicted. It's not the affliction itself. And we'll explore this later, but it's how his bride keeps herself pure and faithful in the midst of the affliction and trial that just ravishes his heart and pulls on him. Okay, so next section... And flip back to our anchor verse that we actually don't uh, stay, 
don't actually read much of the scriptures there, but it's, it's saying the context for everything. So Psalm 45, 4 says, And in your majesty, ride on for the cause of truth, meekness, or some translations say humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. So, interesting, uh, I was reviewing some, the different translations. Some translations say, for the cause. Other translations say, because. And though you're like, isn't that the same thing? It's kind of not. <laughs> uh, it kind of paint a different picture. But I actually believe that it's both. And I'm going to kind of talk about it from both sides. For the cause and both because. It's at the marriage supper that we're going to see these three qualities exalted. Truth, humility, and righteousness. And I kind of coined a funny phrase, but it's uh, called the three-legged horse of victory. <laughs> um, just because it's what Jesus rides on prosperously into the wedding. And so we're going to look at each of these three legs. Starting with righteousness, paragraph one of uh, section B for the cause of righteousness. Uh, the Lord's judgments are to glorify righteousness, not just what is right. There's a distinction between rightness and righteousness. And I'll say this, in my experience, I believe a lot of Christians are, uh, just in conversations and things, and I hope I'm not painting too broad of a brush here, but a lot of Christians are weighed down by what is the right thing? What is the right thing? And it kind of thrusts you into this analytical space where you become the judge. Right? You're like, okay, is this the right thing or is this the right thing? And like they go back and forth, is this the right thing, is the right thing? It's not about the right thing that God is seeking to exalt in this divine wedding. It's righteousness. And you cannot, and there's a difference. And we're going to explore that even at the cross. So what is the difference between these things? The desire to do right is noble, but it's possible to do the right thing according to accepted moral standards and yet miss the God thing. Righteousness is about obedience to the right one, the only right one. You can pursue the right thing and yet never look up to Jesus, but you can't pursue righteousness, true righteousness, without seeking him. I think the most glorious example of righteousness being exalted over rightness is at the cross. Because according to the law, right, Deuteronomy 24, 16, Ezekiel 18, the right thing to do is not to put to death the innocent for the guilty, However, Romans 3.21 declares that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law. So the law painted it witness to it, but the explicit commandments actually seem to speak against it. God's righteousness, his own righteousness, God's faith in God, God's obedience to God was manifested at the cross through Jesus and was exalted for all the world to see, which is why he was the one that was lifted high up from the earth on the cross And it's both at the cross and at the divine wedding that God will show himself holy in his judgments of righteousness. One way that Christ will exalt himself, righteous in judgment, is through the exaltation of his bride. He desires to glorify his bride who said yes to him at the highest cost. We were singing about that earlier, right? The highest cost. Christ is leading his bride to the marriage supper under the banner of love, as we read in Songs of Solomon. The standard righteous that he seeks to proclaim globally at this divine wedding before kings and the gathering of the nations is this. I love her and she loves me. That's what it's all about. And if, you're, if that's a foreign idea of like, wait, the nations and the kings being gathered, there's a couple of scriptures there. I'll read a few of them. It says the nations in Isaiah 60 verse 5 will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. That's speaking of the bride's light and the bride's rising. 
The nations will see your righteousness. He's speaking of the bride's righteousness. And all kings, your glory. He's speaking of the bride's glory. But then here in Psalm 92, we see the Lord's righteousness. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in sight of the nations. In Isaiah 26, 9, which is there, you can read on your own, is another good picture of that. But why does this move the Lord's heart? And how is this pulling the Lord to this, right? Because we don't understand this correctly, and it, it can paint kind of a this like distorted performance picture. The righteousness that we walk in is the byproduct of his leadership, which is why it moves the Father's heart. His words spoken over us as we draw near to him produces, causes us to become like him. It's my personal belief, uh, Roman numeral three, page eight. It's my personal belief that Christ will not only publicly display his love for his bride to the nations in a general sense, but he'll specifically gather those who said they were Jews and were not. He will make them watch him marry and rejoice over his beloved who remain faithful to him despite the persecution and wickedness of her enemies. Right? He says, Jesus says this in Revelation. He says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. I've heard people say, like, the Lord, like, you know, it's the difference between an angel and the Lord is, like, if they accept worship or bowing down. It's funny is there's actually a lot of examples in the scriptures of men bowing down to men because the Lord's causing it. I also believe there's going to be another group of people at this wedding. And maybe this is a little um, opinion. I believe the scriptures support it, though. I believe there will be people that weren't necessarily believers. Um, but the Lord's going to open up an opportunity and is coming to be saved, but there were people that agreed with his purposes on the earth, even though they were not necessarily believers yet. And you see this in government, politics, just out in the world. Um, and they're going to come as guests. And we see this in Isaiah 2 3, right? Where it says the peoples will stream into the mountain of the Lord and say, We want to know his ways, right? We want to follow him. Like, teach us. The great wealth transfer, it's a big prophetic buzzword, right? It's, it's true, it's going to happen, but it's not simply about. The wealth of the wicked being transferred to the righteous, kind of more humorous way of looking at it, is actually their, their wedding gifts. Their, the, the, the nations are taking their, what they put value, invested their time, energy, and resources in their life on these things. And now they're like, oh my gosh, we missed it. But this is their value, right? This is what they know is worth something to them. And so they're like, well, man, we know he's worth it. And now true humility and righteousness is being what's valued by him. And so we just want to show out of honor and a love offering, they bring the wealth to serve the Lord and his people. Like any proud husband on his wedding, uh, numeral nine, page nine, Jesus will parade a bride that's adorned in a wedding dress that is without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And if, for those who are familiar with Jewish culture, this might be popular, you might already know this, but a bridegroom and a bride got legally engaged, right? The bride would go away for about a year to prepare for the wedding. It was the bride's responsibility during that year to make her wedding dress and to keep herself pure and chaste until her husband returned with the call to the wedding. There were legal grounds to break the prior engagement if the future husband returned to find that the bride had cheated. Although our heavenly husband has left in the flesh, he has given us access by him, access to him by his spirit. And it's through this access that we prepare ourselves. Believe it or not, the scriptures actually say, you cleanse yourself, you purify yourself. But when you realize, how do I do that? We do it by coming to him, right? And the reality is spoken of in Ephesians 5. It's quoted there. That he cleanses us by the washing of water with the word. To present to himself as glorious 
But there is a responsibility. Why is it put responsibility? Because it's our responsibility to believe, to hear his word, and then to do his word. Hearing's not enough. We must hear and do. It is for the cause of a bride who is faithful to him in the midst of persecution that he judges and wages war. And I mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to highlight it again. He doesn't just come to punish sin and wrong behavior, nor is he simply moved by suffering for the sake of suffering. I remember Bill Johnson, uh, and I loosely paraphrase this, but I remember him saying that God is not moved by need. He's moved by faith. The reason being is that he already responded to humans need by giving us his son and through his son, all things have been made available. It is our faith, our love, and our devotion, despite our circumstances, that is righteousness to the Lord. This is what he seeks to exalt on the day of judgment. Complaining in the midst of suffering is not holy, but is common to the ways of the world. It's fixing our gaze, as as Apostle Peter says in his first chapter. He speaks of a salvation to come. All the he talks about salvation is not past tense; it's about future tense. And he says, "This is what you do: you fix your gaze completely on the hope." Of the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's in the midst of trial that results in praise and glory and honor from him when we fix our hope in him and we say yes to him. Nothing moves his heart more. I believe this is actually how we hasten his coming. Is that as wickedness increases, it's not just, oh, the wickedness is increasing, he has to come back. If the bride doesn't take her responsibility... To say yes to him, it's just going to get really bad. We have to say yes. Uh, C, page 10. The second leg of this uh, three-legged horse of victory is meekness or humility. And it's because of Jesus' humility, not just for the cause, but because specifically... That he rides prosperously as a victorious bridegroom king. Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And it's for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name. It's for humbling himself that God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name above every other name. Now, this is important, though, because when people hear humility, they think different things come to mind, right? Like someone just walking around like this is humble. I'm so humble, right? Or different forms of humility come to mind. But it's not the form of humility that he seeks to exalt. It's the obedience. Humility is a heart posture of obedience and dependency on the Father. It's about being God-sufficient instead of self-sufficient. God-centered instead of self-centered. And so actually, my mom is here tonight, but I had two examples that came to mind, you know. In one season, it may be humility to scrub toilets. It may be, if that is what the Lord is asking you. So if you, like, don't do that thing and God's like, hey, I need you to do this, and you do it, that's humility. And that moves God's heart. He's going to exalt that in the day of his wedding. But it also may mean that you may be a stay-at-home mom, like my mom. And then God says, yeah, instead of uh, your husband passed, instead of just selling the business, which would be really easy... Uh, you have a business experience, but I actually want you to take the business. And yeah, you're going to get paid a lot being owner of that business, and it's going to be a lot of responsibility, and no one's going to see that as humility, but God sees that as humility because it's the yes to him. Jesus, although he was the son of God and king of the universe, came to earth and became like us in all things. And everything he did 
He did by leaning on the Father. He didn't do it as a superhuman. He, he emptied his divine attributes and he did it through leaning upon the Father. And so in doing that, he actually became our perfect example of salvation and path to follow. He learned to lean on the grace of God and he drew power from leaning upon the grace of God. He took on the same weak flesh we have, but his desire for the Father never deviated. Therefore, he never sinned. He always clung to him in humility, just like we can always cling to him in humility. His path into glory, his path of ascension into glory is the same path he seeks to lead us in. However, Hebrews 5, 9 says that he became the author of salvation to all those who obey him. Apart from our cooperative obedience, his saving work is limited. That's important. We must give ourselves to him. And even when we struggle and we admit, I am struggling to give myself to you, Lord. It's enough just to say, God, I'm struggling to give myself to you. Can you help me? And that is giving yourself to him. He's a beautiful savior. But I'll say this is coming to me right now. In my experience, he will actually test that confession. He'll test it with actual acts of obedience that are very hard, <laughs> but are possible through him, right? So you go, God, I'm so willing just to make me willing. You go, okay, can you do this? <laughs> you know, like phrase, ah. He will test the heart. But what's beautiful is that when we say yes to the opportunity, grace comes, power comes, and with that transformation. It's not just because of humility that Jesus writes prosperly, Roman number 4, 11, page 11. It's also for the cause of humility that he rides on as a victorious warrior, so that his bride would rule and reign with him in victory. We discussed previously about, from Zephaniah about the bridegroom's jealousy consuming the whole earth. However, the good news is that right in Zephaniah, I don't have it quoted here, I probably should have, but right, we know this verse of him dancing and singing over his bride, right in Zephaniah 3. So we see this, this picture of God pouring out his fire of jealousy upon the earth, but then him uh, singing over his bride. So we get this picture that he does this as a jealous husband, right? However, there is a commandment that is in Zephaniah 2 that's sandwiched between these, these, two, these two realities, these two pictures. It's Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. It says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. What are the two things he says to seek? Righteousness, seek humility. And we find that at the end of Zephaniah, I'll just read it. Zephaniah 3, 11, verse 12. It says, I will remove from your midst your proud, your exalting ones, and you will never again be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The bride's path to reigning with her husband is through no other way than the path of humility and meekness. But here's what's awesome. He offers us the same reward of glorification if we overcome just as he overcame. Right? It says in Revelation 3 that you'll sit on my throne. We get to sit on Jesus' throne. But it's not just this, art, this promise that doesn't have a condition to it. It's if we overcome. And how do we overcome? But by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. It's by keeping ourselves pure and seeking him and throwing ourselves at his feet, doing what he says. The Lord doesn't seek to exalt sheer willpower and zeal. This is important. It's a, it's a factor. But zeal and willpower in and of themselves will fall short of the grace of God. We have to direct our zeal and willpower into the Lord. 
It's the direction of our will that matters. And many times my experience is in bringing my will to him that he actually, I become weaker and my will actually seems to get weaker. I seem to almost get emptied of my own zeal and will. But then something glorious happens. He fills me with his zeal and will. The Lord is not looking to display to the nation's human strength and willpower, for there's plenty of that in the world. He is looking to put on display a bride who in the face of adversity, persecution, peril, nakedness, famine, and sword, learned to overcome by using her will to lean into her beloved, the one who loved her and gave himself up for her. It's in light of this eternal redemption story of Jesus marrying his bride that we have to understand the exaltation of humility because starting in the garden, the opposite happened. It was Lucifer who said, according to Isaiah 14, 13, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will make myself like the most high. It was this spirit that led a third of the angels in rebellion with him. It was this spirit that deceived Eve in the garden to believe that if she partook of the forbidden fruit, she too would become like God apart from God. The accusation that God has had to endure from humans since the garden of Eden has been that he is not trustworthy and that we can achieve glory apart from humble obedience to him. It's for this reason that the only pathway back into the garden is through entering the door called Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross and is leading a bride Back to the garden, restoration and glory along the very same path of obedience. Section D for the cause of truth. Does anyone have any questions so far? Take a little pause right here. Any tomatoes that you want to throw? Throw them now so I can duck. Okay. Um, Section D. I'm going to roll one. The last leg of this victory horse is truth. In my sermon on the divine fellowship of last year, I shared how Jesus was the faithful witness. We were singing this earlier from Revelation 19, faithful and true. He loved us. Jesus loved us by loving the father when he gave us the words of the father. Despite those words leading him to a crucifixion. His number one mission in coming to earth was to bear witness of the eternal fellowship. Was to bear witness of heaven from which we were created and for which we were created. In the face of hostility, persecution, and threatening, Jesus bore witness of true love by speaking what the Father gave him to speak. It was his humble submission to the Father to bear witness of the invisible Father that has moved the Father's heart to declare over him in Psalm 45 too, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, you might be wondering, I thought the bride said that. Well, I covered that in my last message. It can't be both. The reason Jesus has been given authority above all things, he is the eternally blessed one. And he's been given the spirit without measures because he was a faithful witness of the Father at the highest cost. Therefore, we see that it's because of truth that the Lord rides on prosperously as a victorious warrior. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read John 3, but it's an an excellent um, scripture to read. John 3, 31 through 36 in light of what we're talking about. We're all living after a vision. We're all being conformed into an image. 
Question is, is that image of the world or is it the image of Christ? Every perversion and deception is rooted in twisting of the logos. And it's for this purpose. It says in 1 John 3, 8, that the one who practices sins of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And it says the son of God appeared for this purpose. He manifested for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil. And what's interesting, I have a note right there in the Greek. The word destroy isn't like this picture of a hammer coming to smash a wall, right? This like force, like, and just destroy it or obliterate it. It actually means to loosen, to untangle, to untie, to undo. And it does mean, if you look in the lexicon, it does translate to destroy. But even the word destroy comes from the idea that it's, it's, the whole is being disassembled into its different parts. Every lie we believe about God is silence in the face of Christ Jesus, who is the brightness of his glory. The Lord is going to raise a standard to the nations, and that standard is a person called Jesus. He will be exalted above all confusion, lies, and deception. And the great battle of faith in the conscience of men revolves around this question, is God who he says he is? We'll have to look him in the face and answer that question on the day of judgment. The good news is this, that Jesus Christ is eternal king of heaven and earth. And through his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, the issue has been forever settled. He is good. God is faithful. He is love. And he's also true. We have lived in a time where transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from lying words, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the streets and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. We have lived in a time of Isaiah 28 in where the priests and the prophets reel with strong drink. They stagger in judgment and they reel while having visions. A time when men have made falsehood the refuge and have concealed themselves with deception. A time where people, as Isaiah 42 describes, are plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves and hidden away in prisons and become a prey with no one to deliver him and a spoil with none to say, give them back. But there is one. There is one who rides on victoriously, whose name is the word of God and whose sword is girded on his side and whose arrows will strike the heart of his enemies. There is nothing hidden from his eyes of fire and he will pierce through every veil of manipulation and deception. He will not just cut back the tree to the stump. He will take the axe to the root and completely supplant it. The peoples will wage war against him and he will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and his bride who rides with him will be the called, the chosen, and the faithful. Church, should not be disheartened, for your husband is not disheartened, nor is he crushed. Until he establishes justice in the earth, he will open the eyes of the blind and will bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. He's coming out and will establish his church as a covenant to the peoples and a light to the nations. Although deception and lies may multiply at the end of the age, the time draws near, as we were singing about earlier, when the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law, and for his righteousness' sake, he will make his law great and glorious. There is a time coming when the deaf will hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Those who err in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complain will learn sound doctrine. A time when kings will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly, And the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth, and the tongue of the stammers will hasten to speak clearly. 
a time when the mountain of the Lord's house will be established as the chief of the mountains and all the nations will string to it. A time when many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Not only is Jesus exalted because of truth, but so is his bride. The Lord's not seeking to exalt facts. But it's the Father's witness of who we are in agreement with that witness that sets us apart as his bride. He will wash us in truth and in doing so become like him. What's our responsibility? Well, Psalm 45, 10 through 11 says it. It says, listen, O daughter, and give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. The invitation to the bride is to listen and receive the words of her bridegroom king so that his word may prepare him room in our hearts, her heart. It's when we come out from our father's house, then he desires our beauty. I'm not going to quote it for the sake of time, but Paul says, I'll, I'll read the last few of this, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. But he says, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. See, the way that we don't make room for God in our hearts, Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 6, we restrained by our own affections, by our own desires. And it's not enough just to cleanse our flesh by our outer works that we're doing, but we also have to cleanse the inner man, the spirit. And the only way that we can do that is by coming under the waterfall, the fountain of God's love and his words washing over us. I want to make a couple uh, points on the Father's house. It doesn't mean just simply being separate from the world. Um, that, that's the obvious thing, right? Come out from the ways of the world. Don't do the things of the world. That's the first thing. That's the obvious thing. But there's some more subtle things. One of them is just familiarity, right? We as It's natural to revert back to what's familiar because what's familiar is comfortable and we know it. What's dangerous about that is even people who are oppressed, who are uh, afflicted, who are uh, manipulated, it becomes a new normal and it becomes familiar and they actually can't leave it because it's all that they know. So it takes courage to step out from our father's house, that which we have grown up in, that's which we have known, and to into the Lord's house. But he's beckoning and he's calling his bride, come out from your father's house. The Lord did this to me in, in a unique way. This was after I came to the Lord. It was after my, like, really my surrender moment. Everything started to really change and shift in my life. Um, and a lot of things happened in my life and that were difficult. Um, and it really shook my faith. And I was going crazy because I was like, this person I respect is saying this. And this person I respect is saying this. And this person respects saying this. And it's like at first I thought they all agreed. And then I realized like no one agrees with each other. Well, who do I believe, Right. And the Lord gave me this word in the beginning of 2019. He said, Charles, I am pulling you out from underneath your fathers. And the way that word played out that year was he asked me to read from Genesis to Revelation. 
with no commentaries. Uh, I don't think I read any other books. I might have listened to another sermon here and there, but most, mostly it was like, I'm going to reteach you. And in doing so, he, it, it felt destabilizing. It felt like my faith and everything that I knew just suddenly started to unravel. And the ground that I was standing on suddenly become like quicksand. And what happens when you start to sink? You cry out. And in that season, I developed a ver- this, like, this intimacy with the Father because, the, I mean, the Father, like all I could do was cry out. I had, it's like, okay, the thing I thought I knew is not what I think it is because he's exposing all this. I'm like, who do I believe? And it's like, I couldn't even find the things I believe. Even if I tried, it's like the Lord pulled a veil over it. And it's like, blank slate, starting over. And all I could do was cry out, Lord, what do you say about this? God, what do you say about this? Because at the same time, remember, faith is a defense, right? So the enemy's coming in with accusation. And he's tormenting me with accusation. He's tormenting me with this. And I'm like, I'm having an echo chamber going in my head of all the things I've heard my spiritual father say. But I'm like, ah, I don't know what's true. And there's no confidence anymore because God has removed the veil. And now I'm basically spiritually naked. Like, if I could say that. <laughs> like, um, And I positioned, my heart was in a position where I, could, I had to be completely clothed with him. And so I just cry out. And the Lord pointed me, I don't have, this is kind of spontaneous right now, but it's Proverbs 2, I believe. And it says that integrity basically is, is the fear of the Lord. That's integrity. It's not, do you know everything? And that you can give an answer for yourself. It's that this is my answer. God, save me. Uh, what do you say? I submit completely to you. And it's just an absolute dependency on the Father. And so I, it's, this, it's the picture of Abraham when he's coming out, right? And the Lord takes him out. And he says he went about seeking a land, but he didn't know where he was going. <laughs> it's like, what do you do when you go forward when you don't know where you're going? Like, uh, God, right, left, right, keep going. And he's like, okay, I'll make an altar. We'll worship here. All right, oh, God, make me. He gave me a little token. Okay, I can go here, right? And you just, and you struggle through this process. And I call it struggling, not in the sense, the struggling is, is divinely inspired for the sake of building up, rebuilding up your heart through faith. But as you mature and you rebuild up, what it did for me is it brought deep freedom. Because we don't realize that a lot of our torment is because of religious ideas that we have, that we've inherited from Christians of old, and we haven't taken it to the Father to get the true meaning. And sometimes it's not that it's all wrong. It's just like a sliver is wrong, and that sliver is just enough in that one situation to really oppress you. Okay, um, page 16. I'm not going to go through the recap. I think you guys are fresh what's going on, but we're going to conclude... Um, starting in uh, 2, Roman numeral 2a, these are the verses that we're going, I'm going to conceptually discuss tonight. Psalm 45, 8, out of ivory palaces, string instruments have made you glad. Psalm 45, 9, your king's daughters among your noble ladies, and at right hand stands the queen in gold from a fur. And Psalm 45, 13, the king's daughter is all glorious within. Her glo- clothing is interwoven with gold. First thing to establish, if you're not, this might be a little harder to wrap your head around, especially if you didn't listen to my previous message, but in this divine wedding, we are both the king's daughter and his bride. That would be my humble submission. We have a father God who's providing as officiant, and God the son who's marrying his bride. Father God is presenting us as his daughter to his son to be his bride. Therefore, I humbly submit that we are both the king's daughter who are among his noble ladies, as well as the queen in gold from Ophir, who's at his right hand. 
As a curious observer of this divine wedding scene, let us ask the following questions. Why is the king's daughter all glorious within? And why have string instruments specifically out of ivory palaces, says places there should be palaces, has made the sun king glad? To answer this, let's turn to Psalm 48. It's a short psalm, so I'm going to read through it. Verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion in the far north. The city of the great king, God in her palaces, made himself known as a stronghold. For lo, the kings assembled themselves, they passed by together, they saw it, then they were amazed. They were terrified and they fled in alarm. Panic seized them there, anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind you break the ships of Tarshish, and as we have heard, so have we seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish her forever. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice. Because of your judgments, walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For Okay, so I'm drawing attention to a sequence of verses here. Why is there a description of the beauty of Zion? And when I say Zion, I'm meaning God's people. When I say I'm the holy, the new Jerusalem, which descends out of above, the city of the great king, I'm not speaking specifically about geographical location. I'm speaking about the God's people, the bride. So why is there this description, the beauty of the bride that follows Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. I just sat, I was like, wow, that's interesting. It starts, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And then it goes right into his description of the bride. I would submit that it's because the expectation of the Holy Spirit is that as the church draws near to worship the king, it will be conformed into the image of the king. So it starts with worship. Great is the Lord. It calls God's people. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And then it begins to describe the fruit of that heart posture. Worshiping Jesus without becoming like him is not worship. It's idolatry. Yeah. Worshiping Jesus without becoming like him is not worship. It's idolatry. Beholding the image transforms us into that image. So if we are not growing into his image, we must question how we are beholding him. In my last sermon, I talked about the significance of a husband being the vine and the bride being the branch. There is sometimes this fear of drawing attention to the bride because we're afraid of drawing attention away from Jesus, right? We're like, we just want to be about Jesus. This fear, although it seems to appear noble, is unwarranted when we realize that it's out of Zion, God's people, that God has shown forth. Psalm 52, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. 
Now, Zion can be God, it could be represent heaven. So there's like multiple meanings to this. I wish I could break it down further. But in the context of this context, it is God's people that God dwells in the midst of. She has become the perfection of beauty and God shines forth out of her. A husband is proud when others dote on his bride, right? Because his bride's glory is the fruit. It's the byproduct of his glorious leadership. The husband in his humility has chosen the path through his bride to achieve the fruit he desires. He has ordained the fruit of his glory to hang on the branch of his bride. Conversely, the husband's expectation is that the bride would take that same glory, that honor and praise and give it right back to him because she knows he's the only source of it. I mean, yeah, I'm careful because I could wax long on this, but God's just amazing in that he has hidden himself in the secret to display himself through us. I'm going to skip uh, four, just kind of redundant of, uh, of Roman numeral three. So go to Roman numeral five. So impressive is the bride's glory. I love this part. That the kings who afflicted her will see her and be terrified. <laughs> they will flee in alarm. They will be panicked and gripped with anguish. Why? They mistook her meekness as weakness. Only to find that the same bride they afflicted will judge them with her jealous husband. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Men will also mourn when they see the bride, whom they afflicted, crowned and wed to the husband they pierced. I believe, like I said earlier, that God is going to let the beast and Satan and all the evil kings watch as he marries his bride, and it's going to be anguish for them. He's, they're go- he's going to make them gaze on the bride who has taken on his image through his glorious leadership, is marrying him, and has remained faithful despite their persecution and wickedness. Isaiah sixty fourteen: the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing down to you, and those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. The bride's gown of righteousness is the manifestation of what has transformed in her inner man. We see in Psalm 45 that she's not only clothed in embroidered work, which speaks to the outside, right? But she's also glorious within. Psalm 48 describes her internal infrastructure as palaces, ramparts, and towers. God himself is in those places. And he has made himself known as a stronghold. But how did this infrastructure get built? I think this is a reasonable question to ask since the psalm itself actually tells us, walk about, go around, count, consider, go through. That's, that's to us. So we're like, okay, well, how do I do that, right? How do I? Well, let's start with considering. I believe that the answer to how these infrastructures were built is actually found in a scripture that we read in Psalm 45. Out of ivory palaces, string instruments have made you glad. Praise and worship will build those ivory palaces on the inside. Palaces of purity in the heart that form strongholds for God to dwell in. It's important to note, though, that praise and worship is not just merely singing songs. Amos and Isaiah speak to this reality. I'm going to read Amos 5. It says, take away from me, uh, verse 20 through 24 is what's quoted there. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. 
but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's not ultimately about singing songs and playing instruments. Those are only outer expressions. It's about heart transformation and becoming like him. We have to draw near to him with sincere hearts, expecting to be transformed and positioned to obey him. And this does something in your worship. Because if you just know you just come and worship and you can just hop in and hop out, and you don't have this fear and trembling on the inside of God, I want to leave different. The expectation is I leave different. And if I don't leave different, something is not right. That puts a trembling in your spirit. I used to, like, when the Lord started, man- like, the Holy Spirit started revealing itself to me. This might sound funny. Um, like, I had a whole house alone. I would t- put on worship music. I'd begin to worship him. And it was like, I just, was like, the fire of the Lord's gaze was on me. And I would, like, start, like, taking off, like, my clothes. It was this weird, like, response. I was like, ah, like, I just need, it. like, there can't be anything between us. Even physical clothing. And it produced this trembling because it's like when I came into my home, it was my home, and I crossed the threshold, I was like, I immediately was like, oh my gosh, God's here. And it was like, I just became, I was nervous. Like I would shake worshiping because I knew he could ask me anything and I was expected to obey. And if I didn't obey, he would leave. And I wanted him so badly. Apostle Peter says something, Roman numeral three, says something really convicting in his second epistle. He first lists eight qualities of Christ that we are to supply to our faith as a result of partaking of the divine nature. And some of these qualities consider moral excellence, self-control, knowledge, uh, brotherly love, love, that's only some of them, godliness. But he ends with a convicting statement. He says, for if these qualities are yours, so, I mean, you have to possess them and are increasing. You have to be growing in them. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. So it's not enough just to know about it. It's not enough to wish that we become like it. We have to possess it ourselves and be growing in it. Are we growing is the question that's been burning my heart. Not just individually, but corporately. Are we growing Stagnancy is death in the kingdom. We must be growing. If not, as Peter says, we're actually useless and unfruitful in him. It is for the sake of becoming like Jesus that we can actually find great joy in the midst of suffering. This is amazing to me. Um, No matter what situation you're going through, when your hope is fixed on becoming like him, there's nothing in this life that can destabilize you. Because no matter what you're going through, when you begin to praise him and begin to worship him, it begins to build those ivory palaces on the inside. Our choice to praise him, even when our external circumstances don't seem praiseworthy, it closes us for his wedding. The Lord said in John 14 to my father's house has many dwelling places for I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is knocking on the door, not just of the unbeliever, as we have said many times it's quoted in that scripture. He's knocking on the door of the believer. He's knocking on the gates of our heart. Will you let me in? 
so I can prepare a room for myself forever. There are many dwelling places. And this is like, we don't understand the places we can go in the Lord because we just haven't known it. It hasn't been revealed to us. But we need the spirit. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, Father of glory, give us the spirit of revelation and glory in the knowledge of him because as we see him more, we become like him. We have more access, right, through faith. We need the, the, our heart enlarged. We need him to go through our heart and unlock doors. We need him to remove the rubble that's maybe blocking a hallway that we can't access that place of our heart because trauma or something has happened in our past. But here's the good news. Jesus is jealous for every room of your heart. He's not okay with you getting 60% of the rooms opened up. He's not okay with 90%. He wants it all because he paid for it all. And you're worth it all. And so I want to end tonight with some closing words. Some of y'all might be familiar with the parable that Jesus teaches from Matthew 22 of the wedding, right? The, The king who hosts a wedding for his son. At the end of that parable, when the king comes to see the guests, he notices that there's a man who is not wearing wedding clothes. And he asks, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Lord's not drawing attention just simply to a bad clothing choice. He's drawing attention to a heart that did not prepare him room. The outer garments, our outer, what the Lord's going to give us outer garments, he's going to put on public display everything that he has built on the inside. And so the common attire reveals a heart that has treated him a common. They've trampled the blood, it says in Hebrews, treated it as common. And because we live in a, the world that we live in, and life can choke us out, even good life can choke out the revelation of Jesus, which is why we must be on guard. The Lord gave me a phrase one day when I was having to make a choice, and I was having a hard time letting go of some things that were very good, godly things that he actually built through me to take on another opportunity. And the Lord said, Charles, if you want the great thing, you're going to have to let go of the good things. Sometimes it's lots of good things that can actually destroy God's purpose in our life. And so we have to be, as Paul said in Philippians, we have to discern what is excellent. What do we pick up? What do we lay down? Moment by moment, day by day. And if we don't have established in our hearts this vision to become like him, then the vision of Jesus will be broken up to a thousand different pieces and our devotion will be scattered. But his vision is not scattered. It's singular. It's single. He sees who he made you to be. He sees who you were when he went to the cross. He doesn't lose sight of it. And his eyes are fire, meaning it's focused desire. He sees, he does not like, that's why even when on your worst day, he doesn't lose sight of who you are because he paid for it. It wasn't this flippant, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll die for them. It was a costly sacrifice. So my call to us is a house of prayer especially as a house of prayer that likes to discuss prophetic vision, is that we would not just be a people of vision, but we would be a people of possession. As Peter said about those qualities that you're possessing and growing in them. Moses was shown the promised land, but he never possessed it. 
I don't want to be one who knows my inheritance intellectually, can sing songs about it, write sermons on it, converse to others about it, even get kind of passionate about it, but never actually possess it myself. And the prayer room, as wonderful as it is, I love the prayer room, and it positions our hearts to hear him and transform. So it's a tool, but it's not salvation. We can learn all the right language. We can have all the right answers. But we must guard our hearts from drawing back, from pursuing him with wholeheartedness, simply because we've settled with a vision of him instead of the possession of him. We must possess him to the degree that he becomes birthed in us and formed in us. So that closes sermon tonight. Does anyone have any questions before we go into, uh, probably just go into communion? I was asking the Lord, um, just for ministry time tonight, I just, hearing Debbie was going to do communion tonight, I just feel like it's appropriate for ministry time to be the communion because that's the whole idea, that we're becoming one with him. And through becoming one with him, his life, his grace, his spirit flows into us. Um, yeah, Lord, what do you want to do right now? I'm just going to close in prayer and see what happens. <laughs> Lord, thank you. Thank you, for, um, thank you for your message, your eternal message. Lord, I, I, I thank you that you were committed to us even when we were not committed to you because you see what we did not see. And we ask you humbly as a people, Father, that you would give us humility, that you would produce in us truth, that you would make us true to the witness of the Father. Lord, I pray for a release of grace over every heart and mind tonight, every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of who you are and therefore the knowledge of who we're called to be would be exposed and surrendered at your feet. Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious and jealous husband, that the jealousy is not against us when we simply ask you help. It's for us. Lord, I pray that in this season, no matter what this year brings, that we would be a people holy and consecrated to you, prepared for you and however you want to visit us, Lord. I ask that you would stir in our hearts a greater hunger, a greater thirst for righteousness, a greater thirst for your appearing. Lord, forgive us where we have grown familiar with your presence. Forgive us where we've grown familiar with your word, where we've treated you as common, where we're considering things that are temporary, that are going to perish in the fires of eternity as more valuable than the blood which has bought us. Lord, I ask that you would visit every person here, that you would visit in them in the night. You would visit them in their mind and in their hearts and in their bodies. And Lord, I thank you even for releasing healing, physical healing, healing over hearts, emotional healing, because you are a husband that is jealous. Because you will wage war against every act of wickedness and evil and perversion against your bride. Lord, may we move your heart. May the Spirit stir our hearts to cry, Lord Jesus, come. 
Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and awaken your people. Come and awaken your people to how beautiful you are, how majestic and splendor you are. God, I ask that you would unite in our hearts the vision of this wedding scene. That the second coming of Jesus would not be just this casual thought, Lord, that we would see that this life is a dress rehearsal. It is where we prepare our hearts for you and that it would consume our conscience day in and day out. Lord, I ask you to strengthen those who are in the midst of trials. I ask you to strengthen those in the midst of deceptions, strengthen those in the midst of false witnesses and accusations. And Lord, I thank you that the word has spoken. You have spoken and said that you will exalt truth. You will exalt righteousness. You will exalt meekness. And that every knee will bow to you, God. And Lord, that even as Paul said, these temporary light afflictions do not compare to the glory of the bride when she is revealed with the bridegroom. So just as we read in Leviticus, Lord, I stand and I bless you as a people. Lord, strengthen your people here. Reveal your love for them, God. May it be an anchor in their hearts. May they go forth from this place with renewed zeal to love you, to surrender to you, to believe in you. Lord, we say there is no one like you. You are truly the fairest of the sons of men. We bless you, God. In Jesus' name.